entertainment law nerds, enthusiasts, and aficionados, and welcome to the Dentons Canada Entertainment Media Law Signal Podcast. I'm your host, Bob Tarantino. Today, I'm joined by my friends and colleagues, Jim Russell and Adam Goodman. Gentlemen, how are you? Good. How are you, Bob? I'm good. Better now that I'm with you. Oh, that's so, you're so sweet, Bob. Thank you. I know. It's true. It's all part of being the dent, being part of the Dentons family. So, this is a special episode. It's part of a series of episodes which are going to speak to corporate slash M&A considerations to be taken into account when a film or television or other entertainment-related business is being bought or sold in Canada. But before we get to the substance of this episode, our standard disclaimer. Dentons is a global legal practice providing client services worldwide through its member firms and affiliates. This episode is not designed to provide legal or other advice, and you should not take or refrain from taking action based on its content. Please see Dentons.com for legal notices. Thanks, Bob. Um, So just for all of our friends out there in the potosphere, what we were looking for is We know that a lot of people are seeing um, articles and playback and other magazines and trades talking about people closing deals and selling their companies or bringing in private investment. Um, And even though we're sort of in a period of uh, market softness out there, I think people are still seeing a lot of uh, interesting activity in terms of people trying to sell their businesses or bring in private investment. So because all of you are participating in the media and entertainment space, We just wanted to sort of focus in on one particular issue that comes up quite often, and that is compliance with the Investment Canada Act. Um, So just to sort of give ourselves a little bit of a framework here, what we're really talking about is someone who is the founder or owner of a successful production company. Um, Doesn't matter whether you're in live action or animation, it's just you're a company that sort of develops and produces and exploits your own intellectual property. And maybe you've got a little bit of a production services business on the side that uh, where, where you sort of help some folks that are in your strategic network to produce shows and you don't own the IP, but you're busy working on services for them. And, you know, maybe you distribute your own properties. Maybe you've um, partnered with some strategic partners in order to pick up some other titles that you distribute. Um, But really, it's just sort of kind of the usual suspect. You've got a mix of productions that you work on. You've got some rights that you try and exploit. um, And you've been very successful, or at least successful enough that you've attracted the attention of people who are maybe looking to buy you or maybe looking to make an investment in you. So you start talking to your financial advisors and they go out and they, they sort of pound the pavement and look for people who might have some interest. And is fairly typical, um, you'll get some interest from both Canadians and non-Canadians. So today we're going to focus on what happens if you get some interest from a non-Canadian. Um, and my friend and colleague Adam Goodman is on this podcast with us as a regulatory partner of ours who specializes in um, statutes such as the Investment Canada Act, the Competition Act. But today we're really going to focus in on Investment Canada. So I guess, Adam, the first place we should start off is uh, what is the Investment Canada Act? Thanks, Jim, and thanks, Bob. Uh, Glad to be here today. So the Investment Canada Act is Canada's foreign investment review statute. It has broad application to any investment by a foreign investor to Canada to either establish a new Canadian business or to to acquire control of 
an existing Canadian business. And acquisitions of control of existing Canadian businesses are subject either to notification, uh, which can be filed pre-closing or within 30 days of closing, or review by the minister on a quote-unquote net benefit to Canada basis. If a review is required, the foreign investor has to submit an application for review and get the minister re responsible. And in the cases we're uh, talking about today, it would be the Minister of uh, Canadian Heritage to approve uh, before uh, the purchaser is allowed to close the transaction. And in most circumstances, there are very high financial thresholds for review. So in most cases, generally, uh, reviews are pretty rare. Um, and that's why in most acquisitions of control of Canadian businesses by foreign investors are subject only to notification. And uh, for investors that come from countries with certain trade agreements with Canada, that includes the United States, the UK, and the EU, the threshold almost $2 billion. Uh, from other WTO countries, the threshold is uh, almost $1.3 billion. Uh, and for SOE investors, so state-owned investors have a $512 million threshold, so they're quite high. Uh, and then indirect acquisitions where a foreign investor acquires a Canadian sub subsidiary uh, through the acquisition of a foreign parent, those for these types of investors are not subject to review. But in Canada, we're protectionist uh, regarding so-called cultural businesses. Uh, which is the subject matter today, and acquisitions of control of Canadian cultural businesses are subject to very low thresholds for review. Those thresholds are $5 million for a direct acquisition and $50 million for an indirect acquisition. So Adam, you raise you raise a good point. Like I, I know that when we do sort of uh, mergers and acquisitions or M&A work outside of uh, entertainment companies, uh, we, we may see sort of some quick notifications if we've got a large deal size, um, but it has to be a pretty monster deal in order for there to be a review. Um, but as you pointed out, for so-called cultural businesses, that threshold um, is much lower. Um, can you give us sort of a sense of what a so-called cultural business might be? So that's a good question, Jim. And the, there is a definition. It includes uh, publication, distribution, sale of books, magazines, periodicals, newspapers, uh, production, distribution, sale or exhibition of films or video recordings, uh, or audio or video music recordings, um, production, distribution, sale of music in print or machine readable format, as well as radio, TV, cable TV, broadcast undertakings, uh, etc. So basically, the businesses uh, of the type that you discussed when you started uh, the podcast today. So I think I think you know that that's super helpful. I think I think it's it's pretty clear that most of our clients in this space, who like let's say you're, uh, for lack of a better description, a Canadian content producer. So most of the stuff that you produce is for broadcast on a Canadian broadcaster. Maybe you've got some CMF money. Maybe you've got some telephone financing if you're doing a film. Um, and so it, it seems clear to me that those kind of Canadian content companies would kind of fall into that definition of cultural business. 
is there a view out there in terms of like what if what if you are predominantly or solely uh, a production services company so you may not be developing and owning your own ip but you're still sort of active in the film and television production industries is that something that would be caught as well so can, can you give me an example sorry jim um, so like if you're just a company that like you contract with studios in the United States or broadcasters in the United States, they hire you here in Canada, um, they, they basically own all of the copyright in the show, and you provide production services so you are actually producing film and television content, but it's just not content that you would own. Um, I know that a lot of companies are sort of looking more and more into that kind of business because it sort of saves them the overhead expense of having to develop their own IP in-house. Um, so they basically spend a lot of their time and effort producing for others. I was just wondering if that kind of business is something that is sort of similarly caught by this definition. So if you're if the business is being carried on in Canada, uh, in in my experience, uh, the folks at Canadian Heritage take a pretty expansive view of what constitutes uh, film and video uh, production. Uh, and that uh, can include uh, stuff as quote unquote technical as post-production. So generally I would say it's safe to assume or the assumption should be that it is caught, but we can obviously look at each case on a on a case by case basis. Yeah, I think I think that that's a really good point. I, I think I think the the idea is like we're trying to sort of provide some general guidance here. I think if if some of the folks that are listening are in companies that are are solely in the business of services that that don't really have any IP content, um, they should feel free to discuss that with their legal advisors. And by that, I hopefully that means us. But you know, we don't represent everybody yet. Um, so I think that's that's a key issue because I I I know that in my experience, um, heritage has taken a pretty expansive view. Um, you know, not not that they necessarily treat services companies differently or with a lighter standard, but they they at least want to sort of get them in their jurisdiction of cultural business um, so that they can then kind of make their make their position known. Um, so so let's assume that we are now dealing with a cultural business. Can you just sort of give us a, a few bullet points on what the process would be? Because um, I think you mentioned notification and review. And I'm just kind of wondering, are we dealing solely with the folks in Investment Canada? You, you mentioned heritage. I'm just not sure how that fits in. So there are two departments uh, at the Government of Canada that uh, have jurisdiction over the Investment Canada Act. One is, I said, Innovation, Science and Economic Development Canada. They handle pretty much everything uh, except for quote unquote cultural businesses, which we were discussing before. The folks at Canadian Heritage and the Minister of Canadian Heritage have jurisdiction over uh, transactions involving a Canadian cultural business. So if I'm if I'm sort of out there, like let's switch hats for a second. So we've been talking about the the analysis from the point of view of 
um, the, the production company owner. Um, now let's just for a minute sort of talk about sort of the viewpoint of a of an investor. So I've, I'm in, I'm, you know, my financial advisors have told me this is a, I've got this great target in Canada. It's got a pretty robust business, lots of upside. Maybe there's an intergenerational moment happening at the company and they're looking for more uh, capital and or leadership. And, and I'm prepared to take that risk. So I, I enter into the discussions. And of course, being the way I am, I, I want to own and control everything. Um, and I'm told that I, you know, if I'm going to do that, then there might be some roadblocks that I have to go through. So if if I decide I want to acquire an existing business and I want to acquire all of it, um, sort of how do I, how would I start to look at that process? So from the Investment Act perspective, there are two possibilities. Uh, and this goes back to the dichotomy I mentioned at the outset, which is notification or review. So the question is, and assuming you have an American investor, um, is the uh, transaction over the threshold? So for most cases in the cultural sphere, the answer will be yes, uh, if, because it's a pretty low threshold. So it's $5 million. But if it's under the threshold, uh, all you need to do to close is to uh, file your notification and that can occur before or after closing. Now, because it's cultural, the Minister of Canadian Heritage has residual jurisdiction to cause the notifiable transaction to actually be reviewable within 21 days of a filing, the minister and the federal cabinet. So there's always a possibility uh, with a cultural business that even if it is notifiable, the government can subject it to review. Uh, so purchasers should uh, approach a cultural transaction with uh, the notion that uh, a review is always possible, but not necessarily required unless and until one is ordered. If it's over the threshold, you can't close until the minister, and in this case would be the Minister of Canadian Heritage, has approved the transaction on a net benefit to Canada basis. Thanks, Adam. So, and that, it sounds like even though um, the investor, and I should have said, as you said, it's a non-Canadian investor. Um, so even though the investor is like putting up the cash and taking over control of the company, uh, it is the investor that handles these filings. Is that correct? That's right. It's it's the foreign investor's responsibility requirement to comply with the Investment Canada. So obviously there are implications for uh, the target and uh, the uh, the uh, seller slash shareholders, uh, but it really is the the purchaser's uh, responsibility under the legislation. And in terms of sort of if I'm coming in to acquire a business, and 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 let's say like sort of as a foreign investor, I'm I'm sort of being brought up to speed on kind of the the, the cultural industry into which I'm buying, and I realize as the investor that even though all of my advisors are saying that I should own 100%, um, what the sellers are telling me is that part of how uh, film and television product gets made in Canada is with a variety of financing sources that are dependent on 
the production company being controlled by Canadians. So that might be tax credits, CMF financing. I understand that Canadian broadcast licenses may be higher. Um, if it's a Canadian content show, I may want to qualify for telefilm and, and sort of other government incentives. So despite my desire to have 100% control, um, I, I could probably be talked down from that as long as there's sort of a financial upside uh, to me sort of having something less than 100% control, which leads me to ask the question, what, what does the Investment Canada Act talk about in terms of what acquiring control is? Sure. Maybe before I answer that, Jim, I, I can... Uh... Uh, expand a little bit on on the question because if a Canadian target engages in certain specific types of Canadian cultural businesses, there is a material risk that the minister will not approve the transaction or that a typical share asset uh, acquisition where 100% of the shares are acquired uh, or all the assets are acquired will not make financial sense. Uh, as you mentioned, uh, if it's dependent on tax credits that are dependent on uh, Canadian uh, status. Um, so there are policies that the government uh, has in place. And one policy that the Canadian government ha has had since 1988 uh, is a very restrictive film policy. Uh, and in that film policy, it's stated that the government will not approve any acquisition by foreigners of Canadian owned and controlled film distribution businesses. Um, so does that mean that foreign investors cannot or do not invest in Canadian film distribution businesses or Canadian film production firms that are dependent on Canadian tax credits? The answer to that is no. Foreign investors still invest in Canadian film and uh, film production businesses that are dependent on Canadian tax credits. They are careful, however, to structure their transactions to ensure there's no basis to suggest that the foreign investor has acquired control of the Canadian business. As long as the foreign investor does not acquire control of a Canadian film distribution business or a production business dependent on tax credits, uh, there should be no issue, uh, at least as the Investment Canada Act is uh, concerned. What are the acquisition of control rules? This is something that you uh, asked in your question, Jim. If a foreign investor acquires a third or more of the target's voting shares, there's a presumption that the foreign investor has acquired control. If a foreign investor acquires more than 50% of the target's voting shares, the foreign investor is deemed to control. Uh, so as a result, there are structures that many foreign investors will use uh, after consulting with Canadian Regulatory Council, as Jim said, hope that's us, uh, that will permit them to invest in these types of businesses without uh, an acquisition of control uh, being triggered. I will say, having worked with many foreign investors, uh, from their perspective, this structure can at first seem exotic uh, because it's not an outright acquisition of the target. Uh, and in that structure, the foreign investor would acquire only a minority of the voting shares, uh, usually under the 33% uh, threshold 
uh, where uh, uh, pr uh, there's a presumption uh, that control has been acquired. Um, depending on the mm -hmm. capital contribution of the foreign investor, they can acquire a majority of non-voting preferred shares that reflect uh, its economic investment in the company. Uh, and uh, there are uh, structures in place that allow that foreign investor to ensure that uh, it, those uh, non-voting uh, preferred shares can take precedence if, if warranted. And the foreign investor can typically get uh, minority shareholder protections in the unanimous shareholder agreement uh, that will cover fundamental changes to the business. So that sounds amazing. So like, so once as the foreign investor, once I can get myself comfortable that I can get a structure that uh, other, other sort of likely situated investors, foreign investors have used in the past, and I can canvas my, my council and sort of get their views on that. Um, is this one of those situations where as long as I have the requisite low number of voting uh, shares, I can build control into the shareholders agreement and just kind of control outside of my voting shares? Or like, how would that work? So no, uh, the, the answer to that question is no. And, and I will even say that uh, where you have circumstances where that's not the intention, uh, where, uh, you know, er, you're, what you're trying to do is structure it to comply, and there's no uh, uh, suggestion or, or intention to acquire control through indirect means, even in those circumstances, uh, even if there's no de jure control through the acquisition of the of shares, the minister can still determine that there's been de facto control acquired. So as a result, um, financiers or, or tax credit authorities will want comfort that this structure works uh, from a Canadian status perspective beyond simply calculation of voting shares. And the best way uh, to obtain that type of comfort is through a binding opinion uh, from the Minister of Canadian Heritage that the Canadian business remains Canadian controlled post uh, investment. Well, that's interesting. So, so the minister has sort of a vehicle. Now I'm assuming that, so like, let's, let's switch hats back. So now we're back on the company side of this analysis. So I've got a I've got a really good relationship with the folks at CMF and a few Canadian broadcasters, um, not to mention my my local provincial um, group that kind of handles my provincial tax credits, and they they get they get wind of this acquisition and they come to me and they say, how how can we get comfortable that you the production company are still Canadian controlled? Is the ministerial opinion something that will sort of satisfy them on that front? In my experience, that yes, the ministerial opinion will be the gold standard. Okay. Well, this it, it's interesting because now when we we seem to sort of have a path forward. Um, I'm I'm the only other sort of question I had is when it comes to sort of the management of the company, um, will the foreign investor um, would they typically ask for and are they able to get um, a seat on the board of directors or is that sort of too much towards the definition of control de jure or in fact? 
No, the uh, a foreign investor can obtain seats on the board of directors, but like everything, uh, Canadian heritage and who feed into the minister's opinion will look at all of the markers of control. And obviously, if the foreign investor obtains, you know, seventy-five percent of the board seats, there would be a suggestion uh, that they have in fact acquired control. Okay. Um, so then in terms of things like um, going forward, when we're looking at doing production decisions, I'm assuming that we just, it, it sort of returns to business as usual. So our parent company would be the one where this um, ownership structure and board allocation would take place. But I'm assuming that I can just drop down special purpose production companies and just kind of continue along the way, and that those production entities would sort of inherit the Canadian control of the parent. Is that sort of a reasonable analysis? Yeah, that's that's how it works. I mean, control is ultimate control uh, through uh, the Canadian parent up. Okay. And then I guess, I mean, from time to time, a situation will arise where maybe the maybe the, the foreign investor sort of doesn't really want to be too, too concerned with the Canadian content part of the business. Um, now, I've heard of structures where people are able to kind of like swing their Canadian, their Canadian enriched business into a safe harbor. So they would keep the rest of their business that that may may not be as chock full of Canadianness, if you will. Um, will that kind of structure work? And as, as I'm assuming that this this structure we just talked about for sort of a minority voting interest arrangement or like a private company, I'm assuming that you could replicate that in a safe harbor. Is, is that a reasonable assumption? Yeah, and and certainly uh, I've worked on uh, transactions where uh, that that has occurred. Uh, remember, it's not it's not every cultural business that's subject to a very restrictive policy or that is necessarily dependent on Canadian uh, status tax credits. So if there are business units that are subject to those uh, restrictive policies or Canadian status tax credits, you know, we've worked here on uh, structures where you hive off those business units into the quote unquote exotic structure but uh, a foreign investor can acquire the rest of the cultural business, go through the net benefit uh, analysis and review with the minister for the rest of the business, and then use the exotic structure and get a ministerial opinion for the hived off uh, more sensitive uh, businesses. And so I think the, that that's super helpful. I, I think the one thing that is it, always been a little bit of a mystery to me in these structures is, is we spend a lot of time focusing on ownership of voting interests, um, the you know the holder of preferred shares to get the economic benefits back up to the private investor or the foreign investor rather. Um, but I've never really spent a lot of time talking about the net benefit test. So when a foreign investor comes to Canada, um, you know, and the perception is that they're just carrying big, you know, sacks with dollar signs on them. Um, what what is this sort of what is the ministry's or heritage's view of what net benefit means? And in particular, I've heard stories about 
the minister reaching out to the various provinces and other stakeholders for their input as well. Is that actually what happens? That is what happens. Uh, so it's a good question, Jim. And just, you know, your imagery, uh, and I guess given that, you know, this is, uh, this is in the entertainment space has images of, you know, Bugs Bunny cartoon with a foreign investor carrying, you know, sacks of, of money in, 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 in bags with the dollar signs on it. Um, so under the net benefit uh, uh, approval process, the investor needs to convince the minister, the Minister of Canadian Heritage, that uh, it taking control of the Canadian business is of net benefit to Canada. Literally, that Canada is net better off as a result of the transaction. And there are a series of economic criteria on which the minister uh, is to make uh, his or her uh, decision. And it's on those criteria that foreign investors are generally expected to make binding commitments uh, that are called formal undertakings to His Majesty the King in Right of Canada. And in those undertakings, the foreign investor will commit to how they're going to operate the business. And, and the undertakings typically include commitments regarding uh, employment levels in Canada, for example, maintaining a certain level of employment at uh, the business, uh, maintaining a certain number of Canadians in senior management uh, of the company or, or on the board of uh, directors, uh, commitments regarding uh, CapEx spending. So for example, a minimum level of CapEx spending, uh, spending on uh, Canadian cultural programs or education programs, commitments to using Canadian suppliers, et cetera. And once uh, the minister has proposed undertakings and the full plans of the foreign investor, the minister will in consultation with other stakeholders, which can include the provinces in which the Canadian business operates, uh, will uh, make a determination on whether Canada is net better off as a result of the transaction. And yes, uh, other stakeholders will feed into the minister's decision. So in your practice, Adam, it, like all of this sounds a lot more like um, I won't call it lobbying because I know that triggers all kinds of uh, licensing and registration requirements, but it does sound like a, a big chunk of this is sort of having pretty strong governmental relations. So as, as a regulatory lawyer, is that are you sort of the person who would interact directly with the minister or the various ministerial offices to kind of talk about the undertakings, talk about the ministerial opinion? Like, how does that normally work? Yeah, it's generally legal counsel that will interact with the folks at Canadian Heritage, or if it's a non-cultural uh, business, it will be uh, the folks at, at ICED. Typically, if it gets up to a political level, uh, there will be lobbyists involved, and we have other lobbyists uh, on uh, on staff here who, who specialize in that, kind of reaching out to the minister's staff directly. As our counsel, we... As, or as counsel, we generally interact with uh, the the folks in the uh, particular bureaucratic units that administer uh, the Investment Canada Act at uh, uh, Canadian Heritage and ISAT. 
So this one, I, I understand that you're pretty active with the folks that uh, make these decisions. So if you want to uh, reserve comment, feel free. Um, but I can tell you that when I first started practicing in this area, um, that it was a pretty high bar to get these sort of projects and structures um, um, through the ministerial approval and opinion process. And there was a lot of time and effort spent um, trying to convince the minister about the net benefit of some of these foreign acquisitions. Have you seen that change or perhaps soften in recent years? I, I don't know if I could say it's, it's softened or changed. What I can say is the structures, the quote-unquote exotic structures that we talked about where there is no acquisition of control are things that are or that have become uh, a, a more known quantity in Canada. And, you know, we or other council can advise foreign investors or the Canadian target generally that this structure has worked in the past and it, 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 we expect it to work in the future. That's awesome. Uh, thanks, Adam. I mean, that, that certainly helps me. I think, um, you know, I think for our, our colleagues that listen out there, um, for businesses that are sort of examining this, I, I guess the message is um, that if you do attract the interest from a foreign investor, um, there, there are ways forward. Um, there is a path to closing. Um, and I guess, I guess you just really need to try and get out in front of it. Um, if you're the Canadian, you're going to want to make sure that you're dealing with a, a financial accounting and legal advice team or advisory team that is familiar with these structures. Um, and then similarly, if you're um, a foreign investor, you want to look for counsel that can help you navigate this and at least calm your nerves that exotic doesn't mean zero control um, and that it, you know, it's, it's a structure that others have become comfortable with. Um, Bob, did you, is there anything you wanted to add or ask or? Yeah, I did have a question. Um, you got, so look, you guys used a lot of words. Uh, they were good words. I like the order that you put them in. The one question that I have though is you referred earlier in the discussion, Adam, to the notion that a deal can't close. So I'm curious as to what the consequences are if there's a lack of compliance. In other words, if the parties just say, you know what, this all sounds very confusing. This all sounds like something that's going to take too long. We just don't want to be bothered. And we're just going to do this deal and move ahead without either the any required notification, without getting an opinion, without interfacing at all with, um, you know, in the film and TV context with Canadian heritage. What happens? So it's a good question. Uh, and my answer will be, there, there is a structure or, or process in place to deal with that, but ultimately it comes down to uh, potentially significant fines for non-compliance uh, and a an order uh, by a court uh, that requires a divestiture by uh, the foreign investor. So that I think so that's the bottom line. So in other words, the deal could literally be unwound, like the parties yeah. could be forced to, to uh, the, the quote unquote purchaser could be forced to divest themselves of the shares or the interest that they think they've acquired and, and give back the, and the, the seller, and I put that in quotes as well, could be required to give back the funds so that the transaction would be treated as if it had never in fact taken place. Yes. 
that that is a material risk if you don't comply with the Investment Canada Act. Fantastic. Jim, Adam, thank you so much for taking the time. That was really insightful. Uh, I learned a lot. Thanks to all of our listeners for joining us on the Denton's Canada Entertainment Media Lost Signal podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, stay tuned for future episodes. Make sure to like, share, subscribe, spread the good word, tell all your friends, tell your enemies about the podcast. Let's have everybody join the fun. Thanks, everyone. Thank you.